Are you ready for the rapture? Yeah. Well, is it real? Is it really a biblical precept and doctrine? That will be our subject tonight. And I'll remind you, we've been making our way through the prophetic chronology of last day's events, beginning with the rebirth of the nation of Israel. And we realize that that is an event that set in motion the final push toward the end of the time of the Gentiles, a time which includes the whole of the church age. The time of the Gentiles began in 586 B.C. under Nebuchadnezzar when Gentile domination of the world began. And then when the 70th week of Daniel arises, God is once again going to begin to deal directly with the nation of Israel. He's already watching over them. He's already gathering them from around the world. He's already got his hand over them of protection, that is. And last week we examined what the final church age is going to look like through the lens of the church of the Laodiceans. Now we noted that is a very important distinction to make among the seven letters to the churches in Asia Minor. Minor, it was Asia Minor. It wasn't, uh, I don't know what that accent was, but I thought I'd throw it out there for your entertainment purposes. We noted that the other letters are addressed to the church in a city. Even Ephesus, it's addressed to the church of Ephesus. But this is actually the church of the Laodiceans, which is a pretty significant tell because the fact is the name or word Laodicea means the people rule. And that was the problem with this church. It was a church where basically instead of the word of God being the authority, the people had become the authority. And their declaration was, we are rich and have need of nothing. And Jesus said, well, your actual condition is you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, this is something that Paul said would happen in the last days, and this is why I believe there is a chronology to the letters uh, of the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. Now, Paul said in 2 Timothy 4, 3 to 4, that a time will come when they, the church, will not endure sound doctrine, But according to their own desires, like the Laodiceans, because they have itching ears, like the church of the Laodiceans, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Saying, I am rich and have need of nothing, is a fable. Everybody needs Jesus. Amen? Amen. Now, Paul's use of the phrase, the time will come, indicates he is pointing forward in time to a future season of church history. And if you back up a chapter, you'll find exactly where not putting up with sound doctrine leads to and the specifics of the time Paul is referring to. In chapter 3, 1 to 5 of 2 Timothy, Paul says, but know this, that in the what? The last days, perilous times will come, for men will be what? Lovers of themselves. Is that going on today? Absolutely. People today worship I, my, me, the almighty three. And that's all around us in our world today. They are lovers of money. Is that going on? Boasters, proud blasphemers. This is a checklist of last day's character flaws. Disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good. Is that happening today? Traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And from such people do what? Turn away. Now listen, we need to pause there for a moment because we are not to turn away from the world. This is what the world is like all the time. 
This isn't a last days thing. The world is always like this. The world is always about self. We're not to turn away from lost people. We're to go to lost people. The only people we are to turn away from is people who act like this and claim to be Christians. And this is what Paul is talking about in the last days. This will be a dominant feature within the church in the last days. So Paul's warning about the time that sound doctrine is not endured and the teaching of fables is preferred, leading to the church looking more like the world than being distinct from it, is clearly speaking of the last section of church history. Now, we closed with the point last time that since there is a chronology of church history, I think we made the case last week, didn't we? There is a chronology of church history in the letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, and there is no eighth letter that as the church arrives in the state described in 2 Timothy 3 and in the letter to the church at Laodicea, we'll see this happening. The church will be more focused on self-improvement instead of fighting to save souls. Twisting the word of God instead of trusting it. And Christianity will be diminished to equal status with other world religions. Is that all happening today? It's happening all around us. So what happens after the church reaches that type of state? Revelation 4.1 says, after these things, after the church age, the Greek phrase is metatalta, after these things have reached their fruition and completion, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. Now, if there's a door open, I say you ought to go through it. Amen? Why was the door open? John said a first voice which he heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying what? Come up here. I'll open the door. You come up here. And I'll show you the things which must take place when? After this. After the church age, here's what's going to go down. Now, why so many people reject the notion that Revelation 4.1 is a picture of the rapture of the church is beyond me. And I say that because John says, after these things, then the narrative pauses for two chapters, in chapter 4 and verse 5, where all of heaven, all of earth, all of those under the earth, meaning everyone who has ever lived and died, was examined to see if they qualify to take the scroll in the right hand of him who sits on the throne and break open its seals. None was found, and then John said, and then I turned and I saw a lamb as if it had been slain. Jesus is qualified to take the scroll, the title deed to the earth, many believe from the Father's hand, and begin to open the seals. As soon as he opens the first seal in Revelation chapter 6, verse 1, the Antichrist rides on the scene as the narrative begins to advance again, and he has a covenant that he makes with the world, particularly and specifically with the Jews, in his hand. Now, in order for the Antichrist to ride on the world scene, the church has to be gone. Can't happen. That's what the Bible says. 2 Thessalonians 2.7 says that this restraining force has to be removed, and then the Antichrist, the lawless one, can be revealed. Now, this, paired with the fact that the church is absent from the Revelation narrative and does not appear again until chapter 19, tells me that in order for us to come back with Christ, we're going to have to already be with Christ. Now, that was heavy, I know. But it's kind of a no-brainer, right? I mean, if we're going to come back with him, we already have to be with him. And how and when are we going to get there? Well, the answer is the rapture. Now, this again is one of the most debated topics in the last age of church history, which in and of itself is prophetic, where Peter said in 2 Peter 3, 3-4, Knowing this first, that scoffers will come when? 
in the last days. Scoffers can be translated as mockers. Jude uh, warns about them as well. Walking according to their own lust, saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, or since our ancestors died, all things continue as they were from when? The beginning of creation. Nothing has changed. Nothing is going to happen. We've been hearing about this whole rapture thing, Jesus coming back, gone to prepare a place for us, coming to get us, to take us where he is. We've been hearing about it and hearing about it. Hasn't happened, so it won't, is the conclusion of many today. Well, in light of the scoffers and rapture deniers of our day, our title and topic for tonight is The Rapture, Fact or Fiction. The Rapture, Fact or Fiction. Now, some say the rapture, somebody actually wrote this to me today. I'm going to try and get my nephew or somebody to watch because he believes that John Nelson Darby actually invented the rapture and uh, the early Christians didn't believe in the rapture which is completely ridiculous because the church in Thessaloniki were worried that they missed it. And Paul said, you haven't missed it, it hasn't happened yet. All these other things need to take place first. Yet, like any doctrine that man has created a label to describe it, we need to be Bereans. We need to study the scriptures to find out if these things are so, right? So, is the rapture fact or fiction? Let's find out. Pray with me, please. Father, we're grateful for our time together tonight. We're thankful that we have an expectation of your glorious appearing. And Lord, uh, we do pray for those that we love and care for, who we long to come to know you before that trumpet sounds, the dead in Christ are raised, and we meet you with them in the air. We pray you rescue uh, the souls of our loved ones and friends, Lord, uh, from the impending tribulation that's coming upon the whole world. And Lord, teach us about this truth tonight from your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Augustine made a statement that's been basically paraphrased in our day, but the original statement was the Old Testament is in the New, uh, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Some have said that the new is hidden in the old, and the old is revealed in the new, basically paraphrasing that statement. Now we find this basically validated by Paul as we've been studying Ephesians. We have found that there were things that were not known in other ages. Now that doesn't mean that they were not written or there wasn't indications of them. We'll talk more about that in a few moments. But think about this. The Old Testament saints didn't need to know about the rapture. Right? right. They were all going to die. Because right. they lived thousands of years ago. And there was no expectation for them, and we'll talk more about that in a moment as well. And nobody needed to know about the one new man, which was Paul's subject, about what had been hidden in time past that was unknown to other people. Nobody needed to know about the one new man comprised of Jews and Gentiles, because that which is called the church today was hidden from them as well, many of them who lived down through the ages. Now again, it wasn't that these things were unmentioned, they were just mysteries, and in Psalm 117, 1 and 2, the psalmist says, Praise the Lord, all you who? Gentiles. Remember that Hebrew word is goy. It speaks of non-Jewish nations. Praise the Lord, all you goy, all, goy, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples, for his merciful kindness is great toward who? Us, everybody. And the truth of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Now, Again, this underscores the point that the fact that God was going to rescue the Gentiles and he was going to have a group known as his chosen people, uh, basically people who came to faith made of jo both 
Jews and Gentiles uh, is not something that was unknown. It was recorded in multiple places in the scripture, but it was mysterious. It wasn't understood. Now, we also need to note what the rapture actually is, if we're going to understand it. And therefore, since we find evidence of God saving the Gentiles in the Old Testament, would we find evidence of indications of the rapture in the Old Testament as well? The answer, of course, is yes. But first, we have to define what the rapture is. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 51-52, Behold, I tell you a what? A mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. That's not one of the trumpets of Revelation, by the way. That's not the blowing of the seven trumpets in, in Revelation. The seventh trumpet actually signals the opening of the seven bowls of God's wrath. So these have nothing to do with one another. Trumpets are used as signals in Scripture. This trumpet signals the end of the church age. And there will be an angel who blows a trumpet, and we are caught up to meet the Lord in the air with the dead in Christ. The trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be... Man, I don't know about you, but I'm up for a body change. I'm ready for that, aren't you? Now, 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10 also says, They themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from where? From heaven, whom he, the Father, raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now again, I'm sure most of you are familiar with the Greek word mysterion, translated as mystery. It simply means something that's not obvious to the understanding. Something that takes a little bit of digging in order to understand. Now, we also know that Daniel in chapter 12, verse 4, was told, Daniel, seal up the words. You're not going to get it. These are reserved for the understanding of people who live at the time of the end. That's what Daniel 12, 4 tells us. So it's not unusual for there to be something that is better understood with the people that are, or by the people that are closest to it that previous generations couldn't fully understand. So, what is the rapture? Well, according to what we read from Ephesians and 1 Thessalonians, we can conclude that the rapture is actually two things. First of all, it's a supernatural translation of living human beings into the eternal and divine realm. And in Paul's case, as he said in 1 Corinthians, it happens really fast in a moment and a twinkling of an eye. It's also, and importantly, the separation of God's people from his direct wrath on his enemies. And that's what God is doing during the tribulation. He is protecting, believing Israel, and he is fighting against his enemies and those who gathered against Jerusalem. Zechariah 12 to 14 recovers that in great detail, or covers that in great detail. Now, is the rapture concealed in the Old Testament? Can the rapture, the principle of the rapture, be found in the Old Testament? Well, let's first look at this in two parts. First being the instant translation from this life to the next of living human beings. Genesis chapter 5, 21 to 24, we're told of Enoch, who lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. Now, let me pause there for a moment and remind you how important Hebrew names are. Methuselah, and boy, what an awful name for a kid, but his name means, no, not the Methuselah part, but what his name means. His name means his death shall bring. And what happened is when Methuselah died, the flood came, and God's wrath was poured out on the earth. Now, after he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 
300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God did what? God took him. Now the word took is key. It means to fetch, or even to carry away. We also see in 2 Kings 2.11 that it happened as they continued on and talked, Elisha and Elijah, that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared, a chariot uh, of fire appeared with horses of fire, and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind, where? Into heaven. So again, we see the supernatural translation of a living human being bypassing death, going into the presence of the true and living God. Now, the phrase went up is kind of interesting. In the Hebrew, it's actually just the word up. And it means to ascend, but it can also mean to make perfect. So Elijah was carried on a chariot of fire, with fiery horses, and he was made perfect, because you have to be to dwell in the eternal realm. Amen? Amen? Now, through Enoch and Elijah, we find an Old Testament record of living human beings being supernaturally translated directly into the presence of God, bypassing death. That's what the rapture is, and there's an Old Testament typology of it in these two men. Now, some today say there's no rapture. The church is going to go through the tribulation even as the saints of old went through tribulation. Now, we know that in this life we're going to have tribulation, right? right. But those are not the great tribulation. That's not what uh, the, we're not going to go through what the Jews are going to go through. That is the 70th week of Daniel, where God finalizes that which was spoken to Daniel about 70 periods of seven years each. It's the 70th week of Daniel, and the great tribulation are synonymous. Now, back in Genesis 7.17, note how far back we're reaching to establish this to the first book of the Bible. We're told the flood was on the earth 40 days. The waters increased and lifted up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. Then, a dozen chapters later, in uh, 19, we see these men said to Lot, these two angels, has anyone, or have you anyone else here? Son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whomever you have in this city, Take them out of this place, for we will destroy this place, because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to do what? So these are agents of God's wrath dealing with the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, Noah was delivered from God's wrath when the ark lifted him above the waters of the flood. Lot was delivered from God's wrath on Sodom and Gomorrah when he was removed from the place where it was going to happen. Now these are typologies. These are pictures of the action of God on behalf of his people. Now, we also have to point out that the Israelites were preserved through God's wrath when the seven final plagues pounded the Egyptians into submission to the will of God to let God's people go that they may worship him. Now, they were present and God protected them during the last seven plagues. How long does the tribulation last? Seven years. So there's a parallel there. We'll make note of that in a moment. Now, some say today, well, the Israelites were still on the planet when God was pounding the Egyptians, who are a type of the world. And that tells us that the church is going to go through the tribulation and God is going to supernaturally protect the church. Well, first of all, Israel is Israel and the church is the church. And the only way we should cross over between what is said to Israel is when it involves the nature and character of God. 
If God says to Israel he's faithful, that's a part of his character. He'll be faithful to us. God says he will never forsake them and his eye watches over them. That's a matter of God's character and we can embrace that as our own. Specifics regarding the 70th week of Daniel are related strictly to the nation of Israel. Now, a couple of things to point out. You guys still here? Neither Noah nor Lot were Jews. They weren't Gentiles either. There were no Jews and Gentiles at this time. There were no Gentiles until there were Jews. Because that's how the world was divided once the Lord established his people and his law. So these are non-Jews and they're non-Gentiles. And it kind of reminds me of the one man that Jesus made through his death, resurrection, and ascension that is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Now, during the plagues in Egypt, in Exodus 8, to 23, the Lord said, In that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there, in order that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. I will make a what? A difference between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall be. Now, Israel did remain in Egypt. Egypt is a type of the world. And during the time of the ten plagues, they were supernaturally protected by God during the last seven. They experienced the first three, but they did not experience the last seven. Now, how did the Jews bypass the death of the firstborn, the tenth plague? They applied the, the blood. There's going to be a third of the Jews during the tribulation that apply the blood symbolically representing their belief in the Messiah, the one whom they will look upon that they pierced and mourn for him as they mourn for their only son. And they will be supernaturally protected throughout the time of God's wrath. Now, the non-Jew, because there were no Jews, the non-Gentile, because there were no Gentiles, was lifted up above the wrath of God in the person of Noah. And they were lifted up because God shut the door on the ark. I submit to you that God is about to shut the door on the church age, and we're out of here. Amen. Now, Lot was physically removed from wrath when the angels met him and led him out of Sodom. So in the case of Noah and Lot, we have, by means of divine intervention, a change of location that delivered people from God's wrath. Now, this is an Old Testament type or uh, precedent, if you will. In Egypt, we have the divine protection of the Jews during the time of God's wrath, just as it's going to be during the tribulation period. Now, what is the rapture? It's the catching away by force of the one new man at the sound of a trumpet blast to meet the Lord in the air before he pours out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. That's what we can see as a type in the Old Testament. That's what's going to happen maybe even this Wednesday night. <laughs> or tomorrow or the next day or whatever. We're not date setting, right? Now the point is, the argument that the rapture is a recent invention of imaginative Christians is invalidated by the fact that the very pattern that's going to happen that ends the church age is established all the way back in Genesis. God was supernaturally translating people into his presence all the way back in Genesis. He was protecting his people even though he was pouring out his wrath all the way back in Genesis. And that's exactly what's going to happen during the tribulation period. So, some argue that the word rapture isn't in the Bible, so it's therefore a fictitious belief. Now, the first thing we need to deal with is our initial statement that the word rapture is not in the Bible. We'll talk about it being fictitious in a moment. Now, is the word Trinity in the Bible? 
We clearly taught? That's just a label attached to it to help our understanding. Now, it's not actually the same concerning the word rapture. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 to 17, Paul says this, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, that's us, and remain until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who are asleep or those who have died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the what? Trumpet of God, same with 1 Corinthians 15. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we will be with the Lord for six months or so. No, we're going to be how long? Always with the Lord. Now, I'm sure most of you know that the word translated as caught up is harpazo. Now, it means to pluck. It means to pull up or catch away by force. Now, if you're anybody reading a Latin Bible here? No? Well, if you were, it wouldn't say harpazo. It would say rapturos. So the fact is, the word rapture is in the Bible. It's just in the Latin Bible. It's not in ours. Now, Paul says, living people will be caught up together with the dead saints and meet the Lord in the air and forever be with them. Can God do that? Or is he only capable of handling that kind of task one at a time, like with Enoch and Elijah? Can he do with one what he can do? Or can he do with millions what he did with one? Absolutely. There's nothing too hard for God. I'm sorry. Apparently you didn't hear that. There's nothing too hard for God. Now, one thing we need to remember is that our translation into God's kingdom requires the glorification of these bodies. And this would have to be clear in the New Testament if the rapture is indeed fact and not fiction. We already read a portion of this. We'll add a bit to it from 1 Corinthians 15. 51 to 55, again, Paul says, I tell you a mysterion, something that needs investigation to be understood. We shall not all die, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. When? At the last trumpet, Paul mentioned in 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, for the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your what? Victory. Now remember, sleep in the New Testament age of the first century was an idiom for death. And Paul says, we're not all going to die, but we are all going to be changed. Changed into what? Changed into immortal, incorruptible beings capable, therefore, of eternal existence. He says it's going to happen in a twinkling of an eye. Where are we going to meet the Lord when that happens? How long are we going to be with him? We will always be with him or forever. So we have to ask the question, if the rapture is a human invention or if it's fictional and not fact, what exactly would be the figurative meaning of putting on immortal incorruptibility? How would we allegorize that? What exactly would that mean, that we're not all going to die when the Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die and after this, the judgment? Obviously there are uh, exceptions. Now let me pause for a moment, just throw this out there, pop in my head. Some people say that two witnesses of Revelation 11 have to be Enoch and Elijah because they never died. No, they don't. 
there's a whole generation of people that aren't going to die. So if that's your criteria, there's a whole generation of people that could be the two witnesses. We don't know who they're going to be, but people seem to like to uh, conjecture about those, those particular things. But we do know that we would rather not be here during the ministry of the two witnesses. Amen. We'd rather be with the Lord. Amen? Amen. Now, listen, it cannot, what Paul wrote about, cannot be a picture of salvation. You know why it can't be a picture of salvation? Because we don't receive immortal incorruptibility the moment we get saved. We're waiting for new bodies, right? Ones with lots of hair. <laughs> and the metabolism of an 18-year-old. All those, all those good things that we long for once again. Now, some would argue that it speaks of the soul. It can't speak of the soul. The soul's immortal. The soul never dies. No soul ever dies. The souls in hell are there forever. The souls that go to heaven put on a glorified heavenly body and are there forever. So what does it mean? What Paul is talking about. If we let scripture interpret scripture, Philippians 3, 20 to 21 says, Our citizenship is in Barstow. <laughs> now where is it? It's in heaven. Sorry if there's anybody watching from Barstow. Didn't mean anything by it. From which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will do what? transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Now a lot of people like to talk about predestination and what Paul talked about in, uh, in Romans chapter 8. This is the destination of predestination. We are predestined to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ in the form of a glorified body. Now Paul said we shall not all die which has to pertain to the human body. It cannot pertain to the human soul. So these lowly and limited bodies are going to be, for a single generation, transformed, which can also be translated as transfigured, into their predestined, predestined form of the image of Christ. Now, Romans also tells us in 8.22 to 25, we know that the whole creation groans and labors with what? Birth pangs until now. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, which is the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this what? Hope. Paul goes on to say, if something's already happened, you're not hoping for it. And I'm paraphrasing, obviously. But hope that a seed is not hope for. Why does one still hope for what he sees or what's already happened? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with hupomone, is the Greek term, cheerful endurance or perseverance. Now, redemption means a release affected by the payment of a ransom. A release affected by or caused by the payment of a ransom. So our bodies could not be redeemed until the ransom payment for us had been made. Now, we're waiting for our bodies to be redeemed having been confined to the expectancy of death. And no one could have the expectancy of the redemption of the body until Christ became the firstborn among the dead. He was the first to be raised from the dead and stay alive forevermore. Where is he right now? He's seated at the right hand of majesty on high, living daily as intercession for you and I. And someday, I believe, if we could picture it in our mind's eye, there is an angel with a trumpet this far from his lips waiting for the command to blow and then Jesus is going to say come up here and we gone Amen. now so let's finish where our series began when we made the point that the modern state of Israel is essential to biblical integrity 
Now, if the Jews were not regathered back in the land, as the prophets foretold, then God did not keep his promises to his chosen people, and thus the Bible contains errors. God not keeping his promises and the Bible containing errors are both uh, beyond tragic if they were true, but thankfully they're not. Amen. God does keep his promises, and Israel, modern Israel, is proof. Now, can we say that the rapture of the church is not fictional, but rather it is essential to the integrity of Scripture? And I think you probably already know what my answer is. Now, in other words, are there going to be holes left in the prophetic timeline if the rapture doesn't happen, or if it's not a biblical doctrine? Now, we can answer the question this way with another question. Do all the Bible's prophecies have to come to pass for it to be reliable and trustworthy? Or can there be a sprinkling of them that don't happen? It has to all be true, right? Now, can unconditional and eternal promises be forfeited or applied to another group and the Bible still be a source of immutable or unchanging truth? Can God make promises to Israel, transfer them to the church, and abandon Israel, and his word still remain intact in its integrity? Can't happen. So in other words, what was once true has to always be true, right? right? So when it was written, it has to be true today. Amen? Amen? That would include Revelation 6, 15 to 17, where we're told the kings of the earth, the great men, now I'm going to highlight a word here. Let's see if you can pick it up. The kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man. And that was a hint hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of who? The lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and the rhetorical question is asked and who is able to stand? Now something important to highlight in the first century the word every meant every. In the 21st century, the word every means every. So rich or poor, slave or free, every person on earth tries to hide from the wrath of the Lamb. And the rhetorical statement that follows has the implied answer of no one is able to stand against God's wrath. Now, did you see in that passage the word except? I didn't see it. Was the church mentioned in the passage where the word every is used twice? No, it wasn't. So do we know elsewhere in Scripture when the Lamb of God becomes a lion against the church? That happened anywhere else? Has there been other times in history where God's people, the church, or God's chosen people by faith, had to hide from the Lamb of God and His wrath? No, it's never happened. Does He discipline us? Does He tell us to stand up and take it? Yes, He does. And He says it's always for our betterment. Now, we do know from 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 through 11 that God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us that so whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him, meaning whether we live or die, we should live together with Him. Therefore, do what? Comfort each other and edify one another just as you are doing. Now, I don't find it very comforting to think the church is going through the tribulation. That's not something that's going to be comforting to any Christian knowing we're going to escape the whole thing that's coming upon the world is very comforting to know, even though it places a burden on our hearts uh, for those that we care for who are going to miss it if they don't repent. Now, if there, here's the point. If there is no rapture, if it's fictional, if something that's created in the minds of, as some say, John Nelson Darby, 
And, and by the way, I, it just really bugs me. You might notice there's things that bug me. That people target John Nelson Darby. Man, that guy planted 1,500 churches, translated the Bible into five different languages. He wasn't some screwball who came up with some concocted thing that he heard from a girl who had a dream. Uh, he was a scholar. That was just uh, an aside there, but I thought I'd share it with you. You can do with it what you want. Now, if there is no rapture, then there's a discrepancy between 1 Thessalonians 5 and Revelation chapter 6. They both... Uh, are one of the two would have to be in error. Now let's add this from 2 Thessalonians 2, 1, 2, 8. You guys hanging on? Yeah. All right, now brethren. Who's Paul addressing? Brethren, the body of Christ, saved people. Concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our, what's the next word? Gathering, the Greek word is episynagogy. To, together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. The church at Thessaloniki was worried they missed the rapture. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing who? himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things, and now you know that what is restraining, that he may be revealed at his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way, and then, what? Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Now, because Paul mentions in 2 Thessalonians 2 that the son of perdition and the falling away are all packaged together, the Bible has a common practice. You'll find it first in Genesis where the Bible will give the hard facts and then go back and give uh, more details. And that's exactly what happens here because we have to interpret what was in the earlier verses by what Paul said in the last two verses, that the lawless one can only be revealed when he who hinders is taken out of the way. Now, it doesn't make it on the radar often, but I do believe that the rapture is found in the phrase gathering together. That Greek term, episynagogi, means the complete collection. The complete collection gathered in one place. It's the same word that would be used for the gathering of the church. Now, the phrase, uh, to assemble in one place, which is the end result of the rapture, the whole church gathered in one place. Some like to see the phrase apostasia, uh, translated as falling away. I know you often hear it as uh, apostasia. Uh, the word is actually uh, apostasia. And it can be translated as departure. But the problem is that apostasia is never used for a physical departure from location to location. In Scripture, it's only used in Acts 21, twice in the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament, uh, once in uh, Joshua, once in Deuteronomy. And it always means a defection from truth, a defection from the Word of God. So that's what he's talking about. That was the parallel we drew with the last of the church age, that there is a defection from truth. And this is going to precede the removal of the church. Now, 
if apostasia, just linguistically, if apostasia were pointing to the rapture and the gathering together was pointing to the rapture, then what Paul said was the rapture can't happen unless the rapture happens first. Does that make any sense? Of course not. They both can't be the rapture. The gathering together with him is the rapture. The apostasia or apostasia is the defection from truth at the end of the church age. Now, Paul says, don't let the words or letters of others shake you up concerning the gathering together with him. We shouldn't let the words of the naysayers shake us up either. The rapture is a biblical doctrine. Amen? Amen. Paul tells the church, let no one deceive you about this. And then he offers a progression of events that initiate the march toward the destruction of the man of sin by the brightness of Jesus' second coming and we coming with him. Now, here's the point of interest. Lawlessness is already at work. Right? Is evil called good and good evil in our day? Uh, is just basically everything that God has stated throughout the creation narrative and down through the centuries has been uh, disregarded by uh, just almost every country around the world. But the fact is, even though lawlessness is already at work, what is restraining the rise of the Antichrist and his global domination has to be taken out of the way and then and only then can the Antichrist be revealed. What is the restraining force holding back utter lawlessness in the world today? It's the Holy Spirit. What is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit? In us. We are the temples of the Holy Spirit. So if the restraining force of the Holy Spirit has to be removed before the lawless one can be revealed, and his revelation is the beginning of the tribulation, then the church has to be taken before the lawless one can rise to power. And we will uh, be supernaturally translated in a moment and twinkling of an eye. So, what is the solution to our question and the prophetic dilemma? How are we going to get into the presence of the Lord and come back with him? And uh, I like what Pastor Chuck said for those who had a uh, post-trib view of the rapture. Well, if we're raptured at the end of the tribulation, then the marriage supper of the Lamb is just a snack. It's not a meal because we're going to have to turn right around and come back with the Lord. Now, let me just say this too, and just to do a little housekeeping for your thinking. A lot of people hold to the mid-trib position because they look at the second half of the tribulation as the time of God's wrath. No, the whole tribulation is God's wrath, every bit of it. It is a time of God's wrath. The first half encompasses the consequential wrath of God. Man wanted a world leader, and they're going to get one. And he's going to claim to be God. As soon as he rides on the scene, that's God's wrath. Not all God's wrath is hailstones of fire and earthquakes and all the other things that we often think of. Sometimes being given over to delusional thinking is part of God's wrath as well. And that's how the tribulation opens up. And if there's no rapture, this progression doesn't make sense. And we could ask, how can the world's only source of salt and light be present at a time where there is no restraining force on the earth to hold back the Antichrist's rise to power. Well, we have to be taken out of the way. And in Luke 21, 34 to 36, the Lord says, Take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the cares of this life. And that day come on you, how? Unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Isn't that a parallel to what we read in Revelation chapter 6? Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to do what? Escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Now the word escape means to flee out of. 
And rapture deniers like to say, oh, all you people who believe in the rapture are escapists. My answer to that is guilty as charged. Yes, I want to escape the whole tribulation thing, and so should they. Now, Jesus said this time that's coming is one like the world has never seen, and no flesh would survive if he didn't come back to stop it. So the question is, if it's global, and we're supposed to be here, according to some, and there's no rapture, where do tens of millions of Christians flee to hide from the wrath of God? Where are we going to hide if it's global wrath, if, if every person is hiding from the wrath of the Lamb, including those who are members of the one new man? It just doesn't work, right? Now, John, I'm sorry, that wasn't very convincing. It just doesn't work, right? Now, John 14, 1-3 also tells us, Let not your heart be troubled. I've told you this before. I'll say it again in the future. The word let can be translated stop. Stop letting your heart be troubled. And in Jesus says, you believe in God, believe also in me. What that phrase actually means is the way you have believed in the Father, you need to believe in me the same way. And he says, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will do what? Come again and do what? Receive you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Titus tells us in 2, 11 to 15, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly. When? In the present age. While doing what? Looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed, and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Now, since the church has to be out of the way for God's wrath, where are we going to escape to? The Father's house. That's what Jesus said, so that's what's going to happen. You can say it's fiction if you want to, but the fact is, his appearing and his coming are two different things. His glorious appearing is when we're going to meet him in the air. His parousia, his second coming, happens in Revelation chapter 19. Now, as for me, and I hope for you, I plan to meet the Lord in the air and escape all the things that are coming upon the earth. Amen. Because, as part of the church, I don't have an appointment with God's wrath. And neither do you. Anybody else with me? Listen, the rapture is fact. Denying it is fiction. The Jews are back in their national homeland after being out of it for nearly 2,000 years. The church today is largely being trampled underfoot by cultural trends and thinks it can name and proclaim health and wealth because of their faith. And what all that tells us is that someday very soon what happened to John in Revelation 4.1 is going to happen to us when the Lord says, come up here. And we're gone. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, somebody say, Amen. Amen. Father, we are grateful for your word tonight. We thank you. Uh, for this blessed hope that we have, this expectation that we're looking for that day when we meet you and the dead in Christ uh, in the air and forever be with you. We thank you for this, Lord, especially in times such as these. But Lord, we also uh, are mindful of those who are lost and perishing without you. And we pray, God, for those uh, around us who don't know you, who need you desperately, and Lord, I pray that you allow these things that we study and consider, the, the nearness uh, 
of the end of the time of the Gentiles and therefore the church age to create in us an urgency for the people around us. Even those, Lord, um, who refused hearing truth, even those who've attacked us and mocked us and criticized us and all the other things that are going on today. Lord, give us a burden. Break our hearts for these people, uh, even as your heart is burdened and unwilling that any should perish, but desire that all would come to repentance. Lord, help us to have your heart in these things, even as we look for and expect that great day of the Lord to come where we meet you in the air and are forever with you. We thank you for that blessed hope. We thank you for your word that we can look to and understand truth. Even when things are called into question, we can find answers that are definitive from your book. We thank you for these things. In the name of Jesus, we pray them. And all the expectant said, Amen. Amen.